are listening to the Insights to Action podcast, the Inspirational Insights podcast. My name is Donna Jones. I'm your host. On this program, we explore many different aspects of future of work, workplace health, and overall leadership in a global world. I'm excited today because we're going to be talking about self-management. It's an enormous pleasure to have Doug Kirkpatrick back on the Insight to Action podcast. Doug and I have had three conversations, this being the third, and this one centers around the release of his latest book, The No Limits Enterprise, which could have been called The No Limits Humanity 5.0 or 10.0 or wherever we need to stretch on our evolutionary path. And Doug, I need to thank you for mentioning, giving me a mention. It was really thoughtful of you to do that. Let's talk about the book. You've been in this field since time began. Morningstar was one of the early companies out in the self-management space, along with Semco and others, and uh, very few others. But but certainly Morningstar has led the way, and you and you've shared a lot of what you've learned along the way. And now you're seeing things happening around the world. Can we just start by? mapping out the arcs uh, that you're witnessing in companies. What are they thinking about now? What are they doing? And where does self-management sit on the spectrum of opportunities for them? Well, it seems to me that there's an accelerating interest in organizing, governing, and managing enterprises in a different way than traditional management, the way it's been practiced for the last couple of hundred years. People are leaders are buffeted by forces beyond their control, technological forces and social forces, the mixing of generations in the workplace, the expectations of generations Y and Z, technology that's as uh, disruptive or more disruptive potentially than the internet itself, looking at things like blockchain and artificial intelligence and virtual reality. Uh, robotics, genetic engineering, nanotechnology. Now we have 4D printing, so we've moved beyond 3D printing. Now we're into 4D printing. Who knows where it's going to go from there? So leaders are feeling a tremendous amount of anxiety. They're literally losing sleep over the complexity uh, of the world and the complexity of their business systems. And it's impacting their personal lives in sometimes unhealthy ways. So there must be a way out of this management purgatory. We've got to find um, ways to create organizations that are as innovative, as resilient, as flexible, as agile, and creative as the people inside them. And so that's driving change. People are looking to examples, to Vanguard companies, uh, successful companies have changed looking to authors like Frederick Laloux and others, reinventing organizations, and trying to figure out and grapple with you know, how to find their way into the future. I'm seeing an accelerating interest from companies all across the USA and all around the world in finding better ways to organize themselves so that they are future-proof, they're bulletproof, they can adapt and be resilient. And it's across sectors. You know, it's the service sector, the manufacturing sector. It uh, doesn't matter if it's healthcare or automotive or food manufacturing or whatever it happens to be. There's just a tremendous amount of interest in finding better ways of organizing. And uh, so that's what I'm seeing. Are you seeing any particular trends in terms of company size 
or or purpose or vision? No, that's the interesting thing, Donna, because it's not really that this interest and thirst for change is not uh, localized to a particular type of company or size or geographic area or sector or, or anything like that. It really seems to revolve around the sensibility of the individual leaders themselves, you know, what they perceive, what their dreams and hopes and wishes are, how they perceive reality and their current state, and what the gap is between that and their their vision of the future. So it's uh, all all sectors, all sizes, it's divisions and departments within existing traditionally organized companies, as well as entire companies and startups, it's companies that have been around for a long time. Yeah, there's no, um, from my perspective, no discernible pattern or or outline of the type of organization that's um, looking to figure out how to transform. Well, I, I take that as a really healthy signal because uh, I've heard too many times people saying, well, that's not for us because uh, we're small, we're big, we're large, we're, you know, whatever the excuse happens to be in that particular day. And, of course, I think also there's a, a connection to the number of companies that say, hey, we've got a modern work culture. But, in fact, when you and you mentioned this in your book, one of your daughter's example where, where your daughter goes in and or daughters actually go in and find 19th century bureaucracy in the 21st century. So it's a lot easier to talk about that doing it than it is to actually do it. Um, can we bridge that now into the tensions that, that show up on the road to self-management, especially if you come from a you know hierarchical organization, whether you've got six people in the company or, or a couple of thousand or 10,000, you know, what are the tensions that, that, people are running into as they start to, as they make that commitment to self-management? Yeah, well, it depends on the definition of the word tension, I suppose, but some of the challenges that people find are that most people are are well acculturated to uh, a system of command and control. They're used to hierarchy, they're used to a chain of command of bosses, managers, and supervisors. Certainly our educational system is oriented in that direction. Obviously, the military is organized in that fashion. Most businesses are organized in that fashion. And so, and business schools essentially train the leaders of tomorrow on how to climb the corporate ladder. So we're fighting a, a tremendous um, riptide of um, cultural power that's pulling us in, in the wrong direction and holding us back. And I, I think that's that's really the biggest challenge. And we're also dealing with human nature, uh, which is, is very tricky. I may have mentioned on a prior podcast that uh, Ian Robertson, who authored a book, uh, The Winner Effect, How Power Affects Your Brain, uh, describes the shot of dopamine we receive in the brain when we exercise command authority. So you combine that with uh, the work of people like Dr. Keltner at the University of California, Berkeley, 
psychologist and he's done studies and, and his grad students have done studies and they show that when people exercise command authority, when they are in positions of power, they actually have their, their manners and their degree of politeness degrades. Uh, they're less humane, less compassionate and caring. And so we have physiological, biological evidence that people are excited by the exercise of power. And so how do you give that up? And if you have a brain reaction that causes you to become literally addicted to power, then we have to design systems that curtail that power so that people are free to be creative, to innovate, uh, to lead, and and to do their best work. And so, you know, that's really why we have checks and balances in our in most democratic political systems is because we're trying to check the normal human impulse to power. So how can we do that in the individual corporation and in the individual organization? And that's that's one of the big challenges. Absolutely. And I'm reading right now Behave, which is Robert Zapolsky's book on the neurobiology of power. And there's a neurobiology of everything. It's very comprehensive, but it certainly touches on what you just spoke to. And and where that leads is, is just how do we use power? Because typically when it, where things go sideways in hierarchical organizations with authority-based decision-making is I have power over you. But in self-management, where does the power sit? And what shift does that call forth in the individual? Yeah, um, so self-management, is, as I've been living it and practicing it for, for decades now, power lies with the individual. It's about really protecting and respecting and nurturing the voice of each and every individual in the ecosystem. And so everyone has a voice in matters that affect them. And everyone has the power to speak up, uh, to be heard, to take actions that are congruent with the mission and vision and values and purpose of the enterprise in a way that doesn't infringe on the rights of people, in a way that doesn't use force or coercion, meaning the exercise of uh, abusive power toward other people that keeps commitments in the environment. So we don't ever talk about empowerment in this environment. Empowerment traditionally means that one person with power lends his or her power to a subordinate uh, in a traditional hierarchy who has less power. And the big flaw and problem with that is that anything you lend can be repossessed at any time. So in self-management, power can't be repossessed because everyone has all the power they need from the first minute they start work. They have the power to acquire resources, the power to build relationships, and the power to do their very best work, the power to pursue greatness, the power to innovate, the power to lead. So we never talk about empowerment. That's one person lending to another. Everyone has power from day one. It makes a lot of sense. I think the other element to this is that the very process of taking the road to self-management re requires a real serious upgrade in personal skills. And actually the skills that have to do with complexity. So if you can, if you can release the need to control everything and, and allow for what shows up, 
uh, that's a skill I think that would be relevant to self-management. Are there specific skill sets that self-management calls forward that you really don't find, you know, that, that are the antithesis of what you would find in a command control environment? Well, <clears throat> I think of them as competencies. I think there are some identifiable competencies that can help an individual become a more effective self-manager in, in a uh, business environment. And I've, uh, in my book, The No Limits Enterprise, I identify, I think, 16 of those. And some of them one can theorize fairly easily. So um, we think it's important that people are willing to take initiative, for example. If you don't have a boss, you don't have someone telling you what to do or organizing your workday, then you have to have the initiative to organize it yourself and to initiate communications with your fellow colleagues and, and coordination and teamwork and, and projects and getting things done. Initiative's huge. We also think that uh, having a contribution mindset is a crucial self-management competency. And Drucker talked about this in his book, The Effective Executive. And a contribution mindset is really about seeking uh, opportunities to add value to the activities of one's fellow colleagues. So what can I do to help make your work life easier, Donna? You know, and uh, maybe you'll share a few things and then I'll create some value for you and, and make your work life better, more effective, more efficient. And maybe you can do the same for me. And so it's it's a virtuous cycle of uh, adding value to, to one's teammates. We think it's important to nurture one's network of relationships. So keeping your network warm and alive, making sure that you maintain good working relationships with people um, so that they're available to help you when you need help, because you will need help at some point. So there are a number of these things that we've identified, and you know, my list is always expanding. I think I have a list of 16 things in the book. But having said that, I also think that self-management has to work for most people, uh, regardless of their level of competency and self-management skills, because not everyone has those skills. Not everyone will develop those skills. And yet, if we create a self-managed environment, we want it to work for the people in that environment. And so, I guess where I land on that is that um, as long as people align themselves and are in congruence with the core principles of self-management, then, you know, if they want to voluntarily associate with someone else who, who's willing to organize their workday for them, that's fine. As long as it's a voluntary association, it may not be worth as much as someone who is out there taking initiative and uh, observing opportunities and, and uh, implementing strategies and, and performing leadership functions. It's, it may certainly not be worth as much in compensation, but if people want to voluntarily do that and what they're contributing is valuable to the enterprise, then so be it. Self-management has to work for those people, too. Speaking of lists, you mentioned an, an impressive list of 41 signals that marks when bureaucracy has failed. Is there a critical mass before the whole house comes tumbling down? Is context uh, particularly critical, i.e. by the context, you know, is it sectorally based or is it nuanced around 
where what kind of work is being done or the health of the sector and so forth. What have you witnessed with respect to those signals and how they form a convergence to forcing a particular direction and or indicating uh, it's time to act? Yeah, so my uh, my list of uh, the failures of bureaucracy is just sort of a, uh, a common sense, uh, practical, observational list. These are signals that things aren't working well. And in general, uh, bureaucracy has a lot of problems. As Gary Hamill and his team uh, have observed, there's a tremendous um, cost associated with that. It's not merely an economic cost. They estimate uh, uh, it's costing $3 trillion a year in terms of unnecessary bureaucracy. It's also a moral cost because we're literally wasting people's lives with bureaucracy. We're consuming their time and energy, uh, which could be spent on their family and their friends and their community and in more productive ways. So it's a huge problem. And um, and you think about decision-making and the speed of decision-making and and all the permission steps that are required in a traditional bureaucracy to get things done as uh, requests move up and down the chain of permission, the ladder of permission. So bureaucracy has serious problems. On the other hand, why do we have bureaucracy? Well, we have it because it kind of works in a way. It allows large organizations to scale and to get even bigger, uh, allows small organizations to scale and get bigger. But it's not the best way to scale because as organizations scale, they start in, incorporating these huge costs in terms of human life and in terms of money and in terms of slower decision-making, etc. And so even though it kind of works uh, at one level, at another level, it's very, very costly. And I think most people recognize it. it needs to change. When you talk about a no-limits enterprise and, and listening to you talk about these bureaucracies that have evolved and then they get to a place where they've got, they're afraid to lose what they've already built, and that redefines risk from being risk is playing it safe. It's, it's trying not to lose what we've already built to how do we actually use the risk that's embedded in this changing context we're in to become better at what we do, to become more relevant to society, to become a different kind of contributor to, to people's lives and so forth. What, what are you witnessing with respect to how risk get changes and, and just what, what's in that basket called no limits that, that, that draws people to it that we're, we're not seeing in these traditional organizations? Yeah, so the idea of risk is is an interesting one because many people misperceive risk. And I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and and, and said, well, you know, this idea of self-management makes very much sense. And it sounds like a very compelling idea, but if we tried it, there would be utter chaos. And that, that always causes me to scratch my head a little bit because... I think about the infrastructure of organizational self-management and how it can scale. And it's really about people understanding their why, their purpose, 
why they come to work every day. What does excellence look like in their role? How does what they do support the enterprise mission, vision, values, and principles? And being super clear about purpose and meaning, the why. I, I question, you know, why why wouldn't every company want every colleague or employee within that company to understand their purpose? So that's the starting point of self-management, and that's getting super clear about the what. So what is it that I do in this enterprise? What is my portfolio of accountabilities uh, for this enterprise? So what is the content of my work? What do I do? Why wouldn't every company want every employee to be super clear about understanding the content of their work and what they're expected to do? And then self-management is ultimately management. So where do you fall on the spectrum of management with respect to the things that you've agreed to be accountable for? So are you involved in planning or organizing or controlling or selecting or coordinating or some combination of those things? That's the stuff of management. So where do you fall on that spectrum? And what is the scope and quantum of your individual decision-making authority? with respect to the processes for which you've agreed to be fully accountable. Are you the decision maker? Are you making recommendations to another decision maker? Are you the decision maker but require input from some, someone else prior to making the decision? You know, what is it? What is the exact scope of your decision-making authority? Why wouldn't every company want individuals to be super clear about the decisions that they have to make? And then who do you need to connect to in the, in the work environment on a very regular basis? Who are your colleagues? Who are the people with whom you work most closely? Who are the people who are just upstream or downstream from you in terms of your process handoffs? Why would you not want every single employee to be very clear about the stakeholders who are most closely connected to your work? So we think this the infrastructure which is the information i just described of self management is is crucial for everyone regardless of whether you're in a self managed environment or a traditionally managed environment it's just that you're going to get more bang for the buck as an organization if you allow people some freedom and autonomy to exercise their individual leadership and innovation capabilities and creativity while they're connecting and executing and innovating and doing all the stuff they've agreed to do with purpose and meaning. But even if you're a traditional bureaucracy, you're going to get some benefit out of people understanding their work at a very deep level. And then we ask people in self-management to connect to each other horizontally by agreement. Okay, so now you've agreed on, on what it is you do and why you do it. Now, now agree, sign agreements with each other and, and make promises to each other, make commitments to each other. And that's how you replace the scaffolding of traditional management. And that's how we can start to, to get past the, uh, the, the command and control structure and mindset that we've been working with for the last 200 years. Okay, that's very explicit. It, it means that you're taking a lot of things that certainly in organized, regular organizations run on the assumption level. And I'm going to assume that you understand. I'm going to assume that we know what we're, that we've explored all the impacts, et cetera, of these decisions we're going to make. And it makes them explicit and puts it right on the table. 
that requires a bit more self-discipline and a lot more willingness to talk about the unspeakables or those things that we'd prefer to keep hidden and that create nothing but tension, but, but we'd rather than deal with it, we, we try to pretend there's perfection running and harmony going on. That's another level of challenge, I would think, in this journey to self-management. What have you witnessed there? Oh, yeah, there's no question. Humans are human, and so we're flawed, and so we don't discuss things that should be discussed. We don't resolve conflicts that should be resolved. We we uh, don't give people feedback when we should. You know, we shy away from confrontation. I mean, there are a number of things that, that are innate to human beings. I would say this, in a self-managed organization, you, you sort of accept that. Uh, that's just a given. So you try to create organization, an organization that recognizes that and, and, and figures out how to live with it and make the best of it. At the heart of self-management is the idea of free will. So everyone uh, has free will, whether they believe it or not, uh, whether they can describe it or not, doesn't really matter that they have it, whether they want it or not. And so you actually kind of get back to 19th century German philosophers like Immanuel Kant. Uh, everyone has free will. So we're all deciding minute to minute, day to day, hour to hour, you know, how hard to work and who to relate to at work and what to prioritize and and what projects to adopt and, and everything else. All these decisions are products of free will. If you, if you assume that people have free will, then there are a number of rather large ramifications of that belief. And one is that it's nobody's job to motivate anybody else. People are either going to motivate themselves or not. And people are going to choose whether to uh, deliver feedback or, or ask questions or address confrontations or not. If someone fails to address an issue that they should address, that's that's their choice. And so, so they've chosen to tolerate whatever situation that entails. Really not a matter of um, compelling them by force to deal with something they've chosen not to deal with. If they don't deal with it, they don't deal with it. Now, if that has ethical consequences or is harmful to others, then that's a different discussion. But uh, uh, people just uh, choose not to address things because that's the easy path, then there's really not a lot to do about it. Can you give us some really good examples of companies that have embedded self-management principles into their mindsets? Yeah, I, I, love, uh, I love the example of Jaipur Rugs in India, Jaipur, India. It was founded by a brilliant entrepreneur named Nand Kishore Chowdhury. And uh, he started the company with the thought that he wanted to elevate the lives of uh, many people who are the poorest of the poor, uh, the untouchable class in India. And so his company makes beautiful hand-knotted rugs a single rug may have a million knots in it. They're made on hand looms in tiny villages all across India. These rugs take months to make. They sell for thousands of dollars. They're heirlooms. They last for hundreds of years. And they're artistic. I, I call it self-managed art that you can walk on. 
He has about 40,000 contract workers, and these are uh, mostly women from the untouchable class in the poorest villages in India. And I was privileged to meet him and to visit one of the villages and talk to some of the weavers there. He is helping develop every one of those individuals uh, into a self-manager. So they are making suggestions. Uh, they are improving their own work. He is taking out the middleman so that the profits fall to the people themselves. They are making money. They are able to educate their children, sometimes for the first time. Their lives are getting better. They're winning awards. They're taking trips to Europe to pick up awards for their artistic beauty. He is elevating the lives of people all across India and showing a pathway to a self-managed, empowered future. So it's really a lovely, beautiful thing, and uh, I write about it in the book. Uh, it was a great experience to meet him and his team. It's a, it's a nice segue into my last question for you, which is when you look at self-management and you look at the role of business in society, what do you think uh, self-management can contribute? What's the potential, what's the vision there to, to handle these larger ecological and societal challenges that we face? Well, I'd like to think that it will help to inculcate a sense of personal responsibility in individuals that embrace it. People should not look to outer forces to fix things for them. They shouldn't be dependent on uh, other institutions. They shouldn't be looking to the government to solve all their problems. People need to learn how to take initiative, to be responsible, to be accountable, to keep commitments, to have high levels of courage and ethics and integrity, being realistic and yet having a vision of a better future for themselves and their families and their communities to have a holistic vision of the future. And so um, I think self-management can go a long way to countering those, those uh, forces in society that help uh, enfeeble individuals and, and make them feel dependent on forces beyond their control. Particularly as some of these longstanding institutions like political institutions are crumbling, they just simply cannot handle the complexity. And as they crash down, it's really going to be up to the individual working together, you know, collectively to, to counterbalance those, uh, those changes, those collapses. Where, where do people go, Doug? I think Amazon's the best place. I've seen it in uh, Amazon stores in different countries. I'm not sure it's available in India yet, but uh, certainly Amazon is probably the best source right now, although it is available on Books a Million, BAM, as well as Barnes & Noble. And it is a Forbes publication as well. That's correct. Yeah. So are you also then, are you also writing for Forbes? Yeah. So uh, thank you for asking. I've got, I'll be writing monthly in their author voice column and a Forbes Forbes books column as well. So every month I'll be writing something for Forbes. Um, so just had my first uh, article two weeks ago and another one's coming up. So it's been great. 
looking forward to sharing that with the community. Thank you very much, Doug, for being on the program once again, and thanks for bringing us up to speed on what you're doing with the No Limits Enterprise. Great. Thanks, Donna. Good to be with you. Thank you very much for listening to the program. You'll find me at insighttoaction.com, Twitter at E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones, LinkedIn, of course, at Donna H. Jones profile, as well as on Facebook at Insight. That's it. Anyway, thanks very much. If you like this program, please share it and spread the word.